Matthew 18, 15 to 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Uh, let me pray as we start. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for speaking to us in your word. And we pray now that you would give us ears to hear everything that you have to say to us. We pray for your glory. Amen. Well, do keep uh, Matthew 18 in front of you so you can check that what I'm saying is in fact what God is saying to us this morning. But I wonder, um, how much would it matter to you um, if you were excluded from the gathering of God's people? How much would it matter to you if that happened? Uh, And we'll come back to this at the end. But right up front, we should be able to say that it should be the most devastating thing imaginable. If it isn't devastating, either we haven't understood who we are or we are doing something very wrong indeed when we gather together. We are heaven on earth. God's kingdom is anywhere where Christians gather. Two or three gather in Jesus' name. There Jesus is amongst them. That's reality. Um, And yet from our world's mantra of inclusivity, um, today's passage can feel very hard indeed to us, can't it? Countercultural, radical, even branded by the world as unloving. But any church which wants to be Christian and remain Christian, that is connected to Jesus... They must take these verses very seriously. Actually, the church historically has always taken this seriously. Take, for example, the 33rd article of the Church of England. You've got to forgive the old language, but it does show us that our particular association of churches should believe this, if only they'd do it today. Because from what I can tell, on the whole, they don't, and... It would be far better if they did actually do it. It would keep our organization actually Christian. In fact, believe it or not, I've known church leaders just down the road from us here to laugh in the face of the idea of actually doing this. And shame on them. Because they think they know better than the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's Article 33 of the Church of England. This is what it says. It says... That person, which by open denunciation of the church is rightly cut off from the unity of the church and excommunicated, ought to be taken of the whole multitude of the faithful as a pagan and a tax collector, 
until he be openly reconciled by penance and received into the church by a judge that hath authority thereunto. Do you see where Cramner and the like um, got this idea from? They've lifted it directly from this passage, haven't they? Pretty much directly. The language is very strong, isn't it? But it is right. Uh, Let's dive in and let's see what Jesus himself has to say. Our first point, um, the process of exposing our siblings' sins for gain. Verses 15 to 17. Uh, The matter at hand is our siblings' sins. Uh, Did you notice how the language changes here from the little ones from the first half of the chapter to now addressing our brother? Verse 15, if your brother sins, verse 21, how often will my brother sin against me? And again in verse 35, if you do not forgive your brother. See, the label has changed, but I think the same individuals are in view from the start of the chapter. The little ones, they are the disciples of Jesus, who are also their brothers. They are the same people, all children of our loving Heavenly Father. And this family language, it speaks of our unity with Jesus. It is Matthew's favoured way of describing who we are when we're here. We are, spiritually speaking, family, if we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ bound together in the most profound of ways. And there is equality within that family. We all have an equal footing here. This is brother to brother, sister to sister. Key being, this is certainly not discipline from an elder or a church leader speaking down to other people, but rather everybody, every one of us, speaking directly to each other when needed. So how do we uh, love the little ones or our siblings here? Well, simply by taking their sins very seriously and not sweeping them under the carpet. I I wonder, um, is ignoring this process of verse 15 to 17 the way that we could cause each other to stumble from verse 6. See, the start of chapter 18, it's all about bringing in. Did you remember that? Verse 5, we are to humbly welcome in the little ones. And verse 13, we rejoice as the stray sheep come back in to the fold. I mean, next week, we're going to be thinking about being a forgiving gathering. But sandwiched in between these two is shutting some brothers and sisters out. It's not just about bringing in all the time, but also about making a line where some might therefore be out. We must remember the chapter as a whole, because for taking our little bit, this this process, out of its context of forgiveness and humility, it would be a very dangerous thing, wouldn't it? This passage is deliberately sandwiched between those two things, and these are our key safeguards for us to not misapply. Uh, The need, though, to take unrepentant sin is very important because it draws the line for what is acceptable in the flock and what isn't. Uh, We are one united group together, not causing each other 
to stumble. And logically, the clearest way of doing that is to draw that line of where sin is very, very clearly. So the matter at hand is our siblings' sins. And if there is a sin, we must deal with it. It's our responsibility. Uh, the use, you see, in these first three verses, they're all singular. It's, it's, it's you, and you, and you, and you. This is your responsibility. Uh, we tend to think, um, we tend to think, I've got a self-control problem, and that's my problem. That is wrong. Uh, my sin is our problem. Uh, your sin is all of our problem. Siblings' sins are all of our problems. And notice how broad this category of sin is. Uh, sin in whatever form. And I think he doesn't specify. So it could be ungratefulness, pride, greed, selfishness, lack of self-control, anger, judgmentalism, envy, gossip, worldliness, sexual immorality. I, I could go on. But you get the idea. This therefore, though, isn't personal grievances or personality differences um, or a personal preference of some kind. The issue is sin. Though it is really worth saying a major caveat at this point. Um, If the issue is criminal, then I'd suggest this process doesn't apply. Um, Likewise, if the issue is a form of abuse or of domestic violence, etc., then I'd suggest this process doesn't apply either. In those circumstances, go to the respective authorities and allow them to do their job. But, barring those caveats, important caveats, we must do this process and do it carefully as instructed here. So the process, it starts privately. Um, Contrary to our normal pattern of behaviour, that, isn't it? Simon really helped us see this. Uh, What do we do? My brother and sister's singing, sinning. So we, we go and tell somebody else, don't we? That's what we do. Maybe it's in the name of seeking advice. But let's be frank. Uh, We can call it what we like. In some way, it is likely to be a veiled attempt at gossip. Uh, Jesus' way is far superior to our default. Start privately between you and him alone. So this is therefore not an open letter uh, or involving as many people as possible. It's one-on-one. Why? Well, it gives the sinner maximum chance to repent uh, without the exposure of the whole gathering knowing. Uh, this, This keeps the temperature as low as possible. This sinner then can put things right without losing face. It's very clever, you see. Go and tell him, between you and him, alone. Uh, The approach from the brother is direct. It's very clear. This, therefore, I take it, cannot be done by text or by email, by letter or phone call, or even, do we need to even say, social media? Go and tell them directly. Look them in the whites of the eyes, explain the sin and why it matters. 
Um, easier, isn't it, to send a quick text message with all our time pressures? But think of the consequences. It could break apart our fellowship. Do this face-to-face. The stakes are far too high for people to mishear. We need to prioritize taking our sins, sibling sins, seriously together. Go and tell him. And notice the desired outcome of the whole process. The aim is always gain, winning the brother back. Gaining is the verb used in the New Testament for conversion of the outsider. See, this implies that this sinner is in danger of becoming lost. The concern, therefore, isn't the reputation of the whole body or indeed the reputation of the individual who spotted the sin, that they are right and everyone can validate them as being right. No, the concern is the individual staying saved. Don't ever aim to win the war of words. That's so petty and missing the point. Rather, aim to win the sibling back from being lost. And the aim of winning back, it must be implied after verse 16 and twice again in verse 17. At every stage, we must give time for the sinner to repent, to come to terms with what's been said, so as to win them back. Very important that we don't take our eyes off this goal throughout. Otherwise, we'll be bloodthirsty justice seekers. No. Gain your brother. And the whole process, it's very gradual. I mean, by step two, verse 16, take one or two others along, we're still only in a conversation involving a maximum of four people. And this step, it's an important step because it's a safeguard, if you like, to check that the facts are really accurate, that this is indeed sin. It's a principle actually borrowed from Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. Witnesses to testify and call the sinner to repentance, though it's still not public yet, notice. And I hope it's freeing to realize that there is no indication that the one or two witnesses needs to be in leadership in the church. This is still very much everybody's church family business. Only by verse 17 does it reach the church, meaning the gathering. Uh, Though even there, that could just as easily mean a a small group. Uh, No need necessarily for someone like me to be involved at that point, I think. And to that end... I'm not sure it's necessary in our context to bring each of our unrepentant sins in a verse 17 moment to the whole church gathering here, say, on a Sunday. I think it's enough to have that discussion with the gathering it would affect. That is usually going to be one of our small groups. That is certainly our practice here at St. Helens on the whole. Although, obviously, if the sinner in question were, say, myself... Or, or William, or perhaps a warden here, or then the right-sized gathering would be all of us here, say, on a Sunday. But normally, that wouldn't be the case. And Jesus didn't give us a specific timeline here. Uh, there's no verse that indicates this must be executed within four days. And so doing this slowly 
and carefully is probably very wise, as it offers the opportunity for repentance at every step, all the way through. Gain your brother. Though never having the possibility of reaching the final stage in verse 17 would probably be going too slow. So we do actually need to make it a process with the end, a possibility in sight. Again, so as to gain your brother. And what's the end of the process? Let's be really clear, verse 17. What does treating them as a Gentile and a tax collector mean? Well, it simply means they are now an outsider. They behave like the world, so treat them as such. Although I think it still means loving them in some way. Um, How does Jesus treat the Gentile and the tax collector in this book? He loves them. I mean, love certainly doesn't mean pretending the sin hasn't happened. Uh, They need to come back into the fold at some point, and Jesus would have been very plain about that indeed. Our aim, like Jesus, is still, from verse 15, to win them. But they're an outsider now. So that changes how we will relate to them. No longer brother, but outsider. Now imagine if we did this. I mean, it would be hard, wouldn't it? But it would also be, I think, beautiful. I mean, think about it. There would be zero gossip. We could trust each other implicitly. And this would create such a genuine community where we strive together for becoming more like the Lord Jesus. It would make us truly unique within this world. I mean, here at St. Helens, uh, this process is enacted upon, but most of the time, the end of the process isn't reached. Um, either as, wonderfully, the sinner repents or the sinner leaves. And, and that's always a really devastating moment. I've been involved in some of those moments, and it's really sad when that happens. And the great danger here is, uh, is that in London, with dozens and dozens of churches to choose from on our doorsteps, um, the moment our sins are challenged, one can just get up and leave and go to the next church down the road. Now, wouldn't that be just a disaster for everybody involved? If you think it through, what's going to happen? I mean, the next church where they're likely to welcome the unrepentant sinner with open arms, I mean, to them, it's somebody to fill a rota. They'll be um, upping the given and making them bigger. Why would they ask questions about their previous church and why they left? But that new gathering would be in danger of welcoming sin in the back door. It would be awful. And also the sinner themselves will have the chance to slip under the radar and the unrepentant sin to go unchecked. It's a disaster for everybody involved. And obviously the world says that this process is unloving. I'd like to say that that couldn't be more wrong. It is the loving thing to help people truly understand that unrepentant sin really matters. In fact, it matters so much that we'd even go to the lengths of excluding the unrepentant sinner from our gathering. So church family, 
Will we love each other enough to take each other's sins seriously? I mean, can I ask, when was the last time you rebuked another for their sin? Or when was the last time you welcomed a brother or sister's private correction of your sin? I mean, if the answer to that is, I can't remember the last time, why do you think that is? I mean, I take it that our gathering isn't sinless, that's for sure. So why is it so rare? My prayer is that it's because we are regularly repenting and making that plain to each other, and not that we aren't taking our siblings' sins seriously. That was the process, our first point, which I presume we all find really hard to do. So we need some pretty big reasons as to why we should do this. And Jesus certainly doesn't disappoint on that front. Much more briefly than the first, though arguably more importantly, our second point, the reason, verses 18 to 20. Uh, Doing this process, uh, it creates heaven on earth. It creates heaven on earth. I mean, doing this process doesn't feel very fun, uh, but we need to know that as we do this, we are doing the will of the Father. Uh, Look at this with me, verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Uh, Do you see the point? Your actions have a direct correlation to what happens in heaven. And what does Jesus mean by bound in heaven and loosed in heaven? We had some questions about that last week, so I thought we'd spend some time on it. Well, back in a few pages in chapter 16, verse 19, Jesus used that language. Um, To bind, it's to imprison something. Uh, To loose is to free something. See, Jesus is in the business of imprisoning and freeing people. Back in chapter 16... Uh, The keys of the kingdom are central to this binding and loosing. Uh, Such keys offer the way into the kingdom and can block those who ignore the keys. Um, Think of the jailer uh, locking and unlocking prison doors. That's the imagery we're here, we've got here. And of course, uh, we are loosed free when the Lord Jesus is bound for us. That's just how the gospel works. Yet, Jesus applies the authority and the keys which he gave to the apostles back in chapter 16, now in this chapter, to us. So, um, as somebody unrepentantly sins, we must authoritatively say, the door is now shut to that person. They must be placed outside Um, almost like an illustration of what's going on in heaven. Or they get this, um, it's seemingly far more than just an illustration. The gathering, Uh, three of us, just three of us in a room together, as far as we're in line with the truth, we have the authority of God the Father. So of course, the moment repentance happens, we can then rejoice and we can welcome the sinner back in. Door can be flung open wide just like it would be in heaven. You see, it's more than just an illustration, actually. I mean, this is such a radical point that Jesus actually decides to say the same thing again for us. 
but coming from a slightly different angle to help us grasp it. Look down with me at verse 19. Look at it again. He says, again, I say to you. See, Jesus is saying the same thing again, but slightly differently. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So who are the two or three? Well, I take it. They are the first person from verse 15 and the one or two other witnesses from verse 16 added together. I think that's the right maths. Um, These are the witnesses who have brought the unrepentant sin to light. They have rightly weighed the sin, shown to them that the door to the kingdom is in effect shut off, that they are now bound, that they are now not welcomed into the heavenly gathering. And get this, um, there, in that moment, Jesus is there with those gathered in his name. Isn't that extraordinary? I mean, it's quite different to how we tend to understand that fridge magnet verse of verse 20. Uh, It's less to comfort us uh, when just a few of us gather together, although there is truth to reading it like that. But primarily, this is here to give authority to the gathering when they rightly do the process of verses 15 to 17. Now let's just pause for a moment and think. Is God the Father loving? Well, of course he is. Is God the Father willing to shut people out of his kingdom? Of course he is. Trouble is, we find it a paradox that a loving church exercises discipline. Yet it's no paradox at all for God the Father, is it? And it should be no different for us as a gathering. It's a loving thing to be doing this. So as we carefully, lovingly, slowly deal with unrepentant sin, we are in effect handed the keys. It's not an illustration. It's more than that. It's the keys of the kingdom, which have eternal consequences. I mean, see, the the movement of this section is just fascinating. I mean, from the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus' words, they gather the people together. That's always what happens when Jesus speaks. He gathers the people. He then hands the keys over to the apostles. We saw that, chapter 16, where the binding and loosing is based on the apostolic word. Now, that authority, that very same authority is passed on to you, the church, through these words. Did you realize you had such authority? We are the church. And by the church, we don't mean an institution. We mean Christians gathered around the word of God. Even you have the authority of God the Father in heaven to welcome in and to keep out, to bind and to loose. There's a direct correlation with our actions here and now as to what happens in heaven eternally. What a thought that is. What a thought. God the Father has delegated such authority of welcoming repentant sinners over to us here. If that doesn't make you sit up 
and take notice. I do not know what will. Now, of course, um, we must say this. This process, of course, could be abused. We must be really mindful of that. Uh, Don't forget, um, you think of the Jews um, and how they threatened to put out of the synagogue anyone who said that Jesus was the Christ in the Gospels. That's what they did. And sadly, Christian history shows it's often been easy to abuse this kind of passage. But when this passage is done rightly, carefully, to the letter, well, it's done in heaven and on earth. See, we need this reason. We really do. Because otherwise, you and I would never, ever do this, would we? I certainly wouldn't have the nerve to. But imagine if we didn't enact the process from verses 15 to 17. Have you thought about what would happen? The church would just morph into the world. Sin would be tolerated in our gathering. So much so that when we get to heaven, there's going to be a very nasty surprise for us. I mean, how do you think God is going to treat unrepentant sin? That's obvious, isn't it? What we are doing by not treating sin seriously is actually giving people false assurance for that last day. It would be criminal. Let's not be that kind of body together. So, how much would it matter if you were excluded from the gathering of God's people? If people could leave us and it wouldn't matter at all, well then, we're doing something very, very wrong, aren't we? Because we are in a very real sense heaven on earth. And my prayer is that if we ever need to put people out of this gathering, do follow through to the end of verse 17, it would be for that person like going out into the cold at nighttime on their own so that people would realize what they are then missing as they've left and that they would run back inside joyfully repenting. But we need to remember, if we blur the lines of our gathering, we'll let the cold air in. And ultimately, Jesus won't be in our midst at all. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words from Jesus' lips. They're so different to how we naturally think. So help us to do them. And to do them knowing that we are binding and loosing people, not just on earth, but in heaven too. Help us grasp that as we do this process of taking unrepentant sin seriously, the Lord Jesus himself is in our midst. And we pray that for your glory alone. Amen.